Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life Over Coffee. I'm thankful that you're joining me for this Introduction to Biblical Counseling training series. It is a 10-part series, and my name is Rick Thomas. The goal here is to teach you the practical aspects of being a biblical counselor. Now, I prefer the word discipleship, being a biblical disciple maker. That is a calling for every Christian. But those two words, biblical counseling and disciple maker, they are interchangeable. Though biblical counseling is a sub-discipline that fits into the grander purposes of discipleship. Later on in this series, I will explain in more detail what I'm talking about. Our culture and most Christians are familiar with the label counseling, but it does not fully explain all the possibilities of New Testament discipleship. As you go through this training, I trust you will find encouragement and conviction to follow the Lord's advice to go and make disciples. Our mission here at Life Over Coffee is to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversation for transformation. We hope you will apply these tools to your life first and then go and teach and train others how to do so similarly. I'm very thankful that you're here for this series, and so let's jump right in to lesson number one. Again, my name is Rick Thomas. This is Introduction to Biblical Counseling, Lesson 1, and the key verse in this first session is from Colossians 1.28. Paul said, Him, meaning Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, you can translate the word complete as whole or mature. The idea of being whole implies we came into the world incomplete. We came into our world broken, a missing piece. Perhaps for some of you, you will remember Pac-Man. He was clunking along, missing a piece, never realizing his fullest potential. We don't realize our fullest potential until we find Christ, and that is the point that Paul wanted the good folks in Colossians to learn from his letter and this verse in Colossians 1.28. Now, Paul says that we can do this by admonishing or warning every person. He also adds that we are to teach with wisdom aiming to present everyone complete in Christ. And I trust through this training that you will gain the knowledge, the wisdom, the teaching. It will not only make you whole, but you will go out and you will start teaching others similarly. The big idea in lesson number one is, though human beings are the highest order among all creation, we're still dependent. We are dependent creatures in need of care that is external to us. We're finite. We are incomplete. Now, this idea will be our focus for the first lesson. We will never get to where we are self-sufficient. We're so independent that we do not need outside counsel. No, God made us to depend on him. And so there's the big idea that we are the highest of the created order, but we are still dependent. The outline is in three parts. Point number one is humanity was dependent before the fall. Point two, humanity or humans were dependent at the fall. And then point number three, people are always dependent on counsel. There is never a time when we don't need someone, primarily God, but also other humans, 
coming alongside us, helping us make proper decisions as we live in God's world. And so let's take number one, point number one, humanity was dependent before the fall. Now, one of the things that I want to discuss here is that before sin entered the world, God was counseling the human race, Adam and Eve specifically, because humanity did not know how to interpret their world correctly. Our condition speaks clearly to our finiteness and our lack of omniscience, meaning we do not know everything. God did not make us all-knowing or infinite but dependent creatures. He gave Adam and Eve counsel before the fall. You will recall this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 about the tree of knowledge, the tree of life. We are dependent. Of course, after the fall, we began to push away from God. Some of our strongest desires are to be self-reliant, not to listen to counsel. After we go down that road, we begin to defy the very God who made us and how he made us. He made us dependent before the fall. Receiving counsel should be a positive experience. We should encourage it. We should look for it. We should welcome it humbly when someone offers it. We should not be afraid to share our ideas, our thoughts, our problems, our struggles with each other. Of course, you know there is inhibition when giving and receiving advice. Being vulnerable, transparent, open to others, it cuts against the grain of proud hearts. If this is a struggle for you, then you want to change because God created you. He created us to depend on external soul care from him and other people. We want to create context where we see counsel as a positive experience. Husbands and wives want to do this, or they should want to do this. Can you imagine a husband that that he thinks that he does not need his wife's soul care? Imagine a wife thinking that she doesn't need the care or the counsel of her husband. The Christian marriage has two working contexts, leadership and submission. That is the hierarchy. But the other context is a brother and sister in Christ. And so in the brother and sister construct, there must be reciprocal soul care. One of the reasons that this concept is so wise is because nobody knows the husband or the wife like the spouse does. They have more data on each other than anyone else in the whole wide world, especially if they have been married for more than a half a minute. And you know that the longer you are married, the more data you collect, which positions you to be more effective in each other's lives. A husband and wife should pursue. They should engage. They should enjoy this means of grace to disciple one another. Of course, this same perspective should be part of our parental care. As parents, our instructions, our care, our training, those are counseling synonyms, you could say. It should be to release our children to care for their parents. We want our children to care for us as they mature. Imagine a parent that equips their children to care for the parent's soul. We have desired for our children to stand independently in their adulthood, craving discipleship care from external helps, 
but also providing it for us. We want them to love us, to know us, and to speak into our lives. It would be wasteful not to leverage the entire family for the sanctification benefit of the parents. We need counsel outside of us. I trust that if you are a parent, that you're training or you have trained your children to care for you, and you have an appetite for their soul care, humbly asking them to encourage you and to correct you appropriately. Of course, if you have not done this and your children are out of the home that they are older, perhaps laying out a strategy to work toward this future goal would prove wise. Of course, this same dynamic is what you want in your church, too. Not your entire church, because you can not You can only have a few friends. You can only build deep with a few. You can't know everyone the way that you want to be known. Maybe a small group context or a small group of friends would be the perfect place to create this kind of community. Humanity was dependent before the fall. And the reason we need wisdom is that we are interpreters. Have you thought about that? We always try to make sense of and to give meaning to our life and to our world. Now, the question is, when do we become interpreters? When do we begin to look at the landscape and try to make sense of our lives, of our friends, of all the things that are around us and our culture? We do this pretty much from the day God brings us into the world. Within a few months of entering God's world, we begin looking around, pointing to stuff, and trying to understand all the things that are going on. We're trying to understand who we are and where we are. We need someone outside of ourselves to provide meaning and interpretations because some things compel us to want to know. There is something inside of us that is driving us to understand the world in which we live. If you leave a person to themselves, there is a strong possibility they will come to the wrong conclusions about their observations, making incorrect interpretations. We are dependent on counsel. If you have children, you have seen this. As they go through the toddler age and become young adults, they see and say things that are just out of touch with reality. Some of these stories are actually funny. They don't know the whole meaning of life, and I'm sure you have your funny stories too, and some of the conclusions that they have drawn. They need your wisdom, which helps them to know God, to know His world, and to know how things ought to be. For example... Suppose you have a child and have got angry at him. We all have done this, and in that case, you can guarantee that he has come to an inaccurate conclusion about what just happened, typically thinking that you're mad at him because he has done something wrong. And let's say in this illustration that he has not done anything wrong. It's just you. You're sinfully angry. Well, his interpretation about the matter would be incorrect. He concludes, Daddy is angry with me because I did something wrong. I need to run. I need to hide. I need to get out of harm's way because Dad is mad, and I don't know what else to do but to make myself small. By the way, that child will get small psychologically, too. If the parent does not biblically explain what happened, bring an interpretation for him because he will interpret it poorly. You could say, child, I sinned against you. It was not your fault. I need for you to forgive me. Now, suppose the parent does not bring the proper interpretation to the problem. 
In that case, the seed of fear will grow, his insecurities will amp up his soul noise, and he will mature into a people pleaser, always hoping to prevent any future anger from his dad. One false interpretation will linger. Each time the parents are sinfully angry, similar interpretations will glom on to the first. The child will have a habituated worldview that says something is wrong with him. It will tempt him to look outside of himself to find satiating comforts, which are usually sinful, like companionship, lust, drugs, etc., As an adult, this pattern will be a primary shaping influence in his life. By the way, he will export it to, if he gets married, and then also to his children. Of course, the parent could alter all of this by clearing up their angry or cleaning up their angry messes. We call that repentance. And so God was there before the fall making sense of Adam's world. There were things that Adam did not perceive or understand. According to God's design, he was a dependent creature. You see that in Genesis 2.18. God said it was not good for him to be alone. Adam did not say that, but God did. Adam was happy with his little farm and the abundance of food that he had. But when God looked into the situation, he brought an interpretation that never crossed Adam's mind. The Lord said it was not good, and so the Lord made Eve for Adam. After Adam awoke, he liked how God interpreted things. Now, throughout this study, there will be reflection points along the way. And for you to make the most of this training, I want you to pause the audio if you're listening by audio, the video if you're watching, and I want you to take the time to really work out the questions that I'm going to be asking you. I would encourage you to write them down, and you can even go back through them later. This will be your homework assignment in these training sessions, and so reflect point number one, the first question that you have, what incorrect interpretations of God, of self, of others, and your world have you had? I've had many of these things, mainly before becoming a Christian, as far as wrong interpretations are concerned. For example, I saw God as a not-so-kind person because my dad was a mean, angry tyrant. The only father I knew was my abusive dad, so when I came to know God the Father, this one adverse shaping influence was controlling so much that it took me many years to unlearn what a father is. I became a confused, insecure, angry teenager. I saw others from a suspicious, cynical perspective who were out to get me. I had little hope for the world in which I lived Of course, after regeneration, God began to uh, redefine me, himself, others. He began to redefine my world. As I reflect, my current interpretations differ from a lot from when God saved me. And aren't we all like this? According to our shaping influences, we have more refined and precise interpretations because we have had better counsel than ourselves Now that God has saved us and and he is speaking into our lives, there have been teachers, friends, pastors, and many great resources that God has used to change how we interpret ourselves and the world around us. 
What if you interact with people who struggle with fear and anger? Well, in that case, you want to understand them and their stories and their shaping influences. You need to know why they interpret life the way that they do. And as you get to know them, you can better disciple or counsel them, helping them to see life from a bibliocentric perspective rather than from their fallen life or their fallen world. They need new interpretations outside of themselves. And so before moving on, will you spend some time reflecting on this point? addressing your adverse shaping influences, and thinking about how those you love and and how their false interpretations have shaped them. Question number two, what are some of the hindrances that keep you from receiving counsel? Please take some time to, to jot down a few ways you would answer this question. As I have taught with folks through counseling over many years, there have been different reasons they don't want to receive counseling, Of course, the number one answer is always fear. They don't want folks to know what is happening in their lives, for example. They do not know how to live in a transparent community, another illustration. Others have said family or the church has hurt them, and so they are inhibited. They enter counseling cynically, thinking there will be punitive blowback because that is all they know. What a wonderful opportunity that you have before you. But what about you? What hindrances keep you from courageously seeking advice from others? And if you do struggle with this, what is the solution? Take your time. You want to reflect thoroughly throughout this course that gain the most from this course. What are a few reasons you do not offer counsel? Now it's going the other way. It's not you inhibited from receiving counsel, but inhibited from providing it. Of course, the most common answer is, I don't know what to say in such and such situation, which is unfortunate that we're at this place in church history in light of all the resources that we have. I think of the woman at the well in John 4 who met Christ about 30 seconds ago, but she went into the town and All she knew to say was, come see a man. That was good enough. It doesn't matter where we are in our sanctification experience. We should be willing to say something, even if it's a simplistic statement like, come see Jesus. All Christians should offer biblical advice according to their capacity and their competence, always striving to mature more so that they can be more effective in their soul care endeavors. Our goal is to mature continuously while never disqualifying ourselves from providing counsel. If all you can say is come see a man, please start there. You'll become more efficient in time. Point number one, humanity was dependent before the fall. Point number two, humans were dependent at the fall. Genesis 3 presents two kinds of counsel, 3-6 specifically, for the first time in history. Satan was counseling Eve to follow her intuition and logic instead of the Creator's word. Now we have God's counsel, and we have Satan's counsel. The center of truth shifted from God and His word to the heart of humanity. People became the determiner of truth a change in our presupposition about truth. 
At this point, the center of truth shifted shifted from God and his word to the heart of humanity. This juncture is the significant shift in Genesis 3-6, and nothing has changed since. People became the determiner of truth, a change in our presupposition about truth. Now, what is a presupposition? A presupposition is a fundamental heart commitment. It's what we believe before we think about anything. It provides the interpretation and the conclusions of what we think about and all that we see. Perhaps you can think of a presupposition like a a lens that offers a unique color to your world, and everybody has a different lens. Everybody has a different presupposition, though all of them are different because of our unique Adamic influences and the other things that have brought shape to our souls. Before Genesis 3.6, the window was spotless. Adam and Eve had a fundamental heart commitment, a presupposition that said, I believe in God and his word. I will follow, I will listen, I will heed all that he says, and I will not do otherwise. God is good, and he will take care of us. Then in Genesis 3.6, Satan brought alternative counsel. It was no longer about God and his word. We have choices that are outside of God's truth now, and sadly, we make them all the time. We can trust God and His Word, or we can go with our wicked hearts, desperately wicked hearts. Scriptures are replete with wisdom that warns about going with our hearts, making it highly problematic to run from sound counsel that comes from God and other competent Christians. All right, so I want to talk about this idea of presuppositional truth. Cornelius Van Til said that there are no neutral facts, as he uh, shared his understanding of, of apologetics, that every fact is not neutral, but yet we bring our interpretations to all facts, whatever those facts are. Let me bring a fact before you. The fact is an apple. You're looking at it. And so you're standing in an orchard. You're staring at an apple. There's a friend with you who is not a Christian. And so you have a Christian worldview. That is the lens. That is the presupposition. And then your friend has a non-Christian worldview as he looks at the apple. Well, you know the end of the story you're going to come to different conclusions about that apple because you're staring through two different lenses. Now, what I want to do here is to stack up some words. They're not necessarily in a sequential order, but it is a collection of words that you can build upon either a Christian worldview or a non-Christian worldview. So this is how it goes. A Christian will begin with truth. A non-Christian will begin with lies. You can see how we're going in different directions already. The Christian worldview, of course, they would be a believer. God has regenerated them. And if you have a non-Christian worldview, obviously that you're dead and futile, dead in your trespasses and futile in your minds. Also, the Christian would be a creationist. He believed that he believes the account in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created all things. The non-Christian is an evolutionist. And so you can see how some of these component parts of their system will alter how or cause them to believe differently about whatever it is they're looking at, even if it's something as basic as an apple. 
The Christian worldview, he will be a disciple maker. The non-Christian, he will seek a psychologist. The believer will be God-centered. The non-believer will be person-centered. The Christian will have a redeemer. The best that a non-Christian can find is self-help. The the Christian can experience change, and of course, the non-Christian, the best he could do is experience relief. Again, these words do not stack up in a sequential order, but it is a word cloud that shows some of the differences between a presupposition that is a Christian worldview and a non-Christian presuppositional worldview. And their conclusion of the matter is the believer would give glory to God when he looks at the apple. Of course, the non-Christian would give glory to himself. And so this gives you an excellent idea what presuppositional truth is. It's essential to know that we all have a presuppositional window. It's all different, and I will talk about that in just a moment. I want to give you a brief break just to catch your breath. I want to encourage you to jump out at lifeovercoffee.com. That is our ministry. We have tons of resources there, and I would love for you to take advantage of them. This is lesson number one, Introduction to Biblical Counseling. The outline is humanity was dependent before the fall. I have talked about that. Humans are dependent at the fall, and then people are always dependent upon counsel. As you saw from the graphic about presuppositional truth, we color our windows through shaping influences, making it critical to discern why a person thinks the way they do. Nobody comes into the world like anyone else, and we all have different shaping influences. We are totally depraved, but uniquely fallen. So as you think about yourself and how you bring interpretations to life, you want to consider your shaping influences. Of course, the same applies to those you disciple. If you do not know them, you will not be able to help them well. And so one of the keys when thinking about these things is realizing that we have different experiences, which could lead to impatience. We want to be careful here. We can forget this essential truth about differing shaping influences. People didn't get to where they are because they are on the same path as you. No, everybody is taking a different journey. And so you must ensure that you enter their lives, understanding them. Isn't this what Christ did for us? Taking the form of a servant, and he became a sympathizing Savior. And so your goal is to emulate this gospel initiative as you step into the experiences of others. And so I want to talk about shaping influences. There are several of them. For example, Adamic shaping influence. I said earlier that we're totally depraved and uniquely fallen. This is a pivotal, pivotal way to think about our primary shaping influences. Totally depraved means that we are broken through and through. It doesn't mean that we have done all that we could possibly do as far as evil is concerned, but it does mean that there are no known limits of what we could do, uh, that we are corrupted. As, as Paul said, it would be helpful to read Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, where he talks about our total depravity. And so you want to discern this condition about yourself and others for, obviously, for obvious reasons. We are totally depraved, but everybody is different. We are uniquely fallen. Sometimes a person will say, I, will, I was born this way. 
They may be correct because we're all born uniquely. If you have more than one child, you see this as one child struggles a certain way, suffers a different way, and they succeed in in unique ways that's different from the other siblings in the family. And so we're born in Adam, we're totally depraved, and we are uniquely fallen. Another shaping influence is ourselves, the choices that we make. We make good choices and we make bad decisions, affecting our lives for good and for evil. And so you don't want to discount the things that we do to ourselves. I'm sure you can think of something that you have done that made your life easier, and then there's been other decisions that have led to complications. We all do this. Everything works to shape us into the people we are. After you became a Christian, you began a process of reformatting your disk, reformatting your life into Christ-likeness, which has a cleansing effect on our presuppositional window. It's like taking a window cleaner and getting all that Adamic dust off it so that we can have better, more bibliocentric interpretations. Now, there are a few cautions here. You want to make sure that you don't see yourself as a victim, as though whatever has happened to you is outside God's grace to impact you and to change your life. You're not a victim. God's grace is greater than whatever has happened to you. Also, you don't want to regret the poor decisions that you have made. God can take whatever was meant for evil intent, and he can turn it to his fame and also for your benefit. So don't play the victim card. You can do that two ways. What we did to ourselves, and we just live a victim mentality, and what others did to us. Both of those concepts is negating the grace of God. So some of the shaping influences is Adam and self, and of course, also other people. Their words and their actions, and I'm sure you can reflect on on words that Someone said to you, or sad events from your past, people affect people. We have been affected by them, and by the way, we have affected people for good and and bad, because we live in a fallen world among fallen people, and some of those words and actions will have an adverse shaping effect on us. And then the fourth are the events, of course, and I have mentioned that. The things that have happened to us There are several other shaping influences, by the way, like how your mother carried you in the womb. That's called intrauterine influences. A person's family, their community, the culture, the country, the language, the zeitgeist of the age. Each generation differs from the last generation. And so it would help if you'd also consider a person's DNA, their IQ, their physical makeup their stature, their skin color, their temptations, their biases, their strengths, their weaknesses. I'm just giving you a word cloud of shaping influences. And don't forget about a religious influence. It's a long list pointing to each person's uniqueness and the necessity of discerning each person within your sphere of care. Now, most of the shaping influences, this list that I just gave you and a few others that you could add, most all of them will fit up under Adam, self, people, and events. Collected together, they form a window through which we can interpret and react to life. 
I want to share with you a, it's a long quote, but it is an important quote when we talk about providing counsel to others. I've been talking about trying to understand the person that you're helping, and I want to speak very briefly to the primary tool in which we use, which of course is the Bible. The Dutch reformer Herman Bovink, he said this, Scripture was not given to us so that we should merely repeat its exact words in parrot-like fashion, but so that we could or should digest it in our minds and express it in our own words. That use was made of Scripture by Jesus and the apostles, who not only quoted the exact words of Scripture, but also by a process of reasoning arrived at inferences and conclusions based upon those words. The Bible is neither a statute book nor a dogmatic text, but it is the source of theology. As the Word of God, not only does it exact words have binding authority, but so have all conclusions that are properly derived from it. Furthermore, neither study of Scripture nor theological activity is possible unless one uses terms that do not occur in the Bible. One of the big ideas here is that we must do more than share God's Word with other people. It's okay to do that. We don't want to paste Scripture on people's foreheads or plant it into their minds and do nothing else. Now, of course, everything that we say and do, as Bavik was saying here, comes out of our understanding of the Bible. The Bible is our source of theology, but he is appealing to us to extrapolate what God's Word mean in a customizable way to the unique person that is sitting in front of you. That is why you want to understand a person's shaping influences, and then coupled to that, you want to become a master of God's Word, understanding it while asking the Spirit of God to illuminate your mind so that you can see what He wants you to see and you can know what He wants you to know. We must be able to discern people and then discern God's Word and then collate those things in a customizable way to the person sitting in front of you. Let me give you a reflection question here. And again, you can pause and think about this question and even do a little working assignment. That would be great. Also, sharing these reflection points with other people would be huge as you collaborate and talk through what you're learning here. And so here's the question. Will you spend time reflecting on this Bavink quote that you're looking at here? What areas are you weak in sharing God's Word? Where do you need to grow? What will be your plan to mature in God's Word, particularly the application of it? And who will you ask to come alongside you to spur you on in these good efforts? And so there are two things that you want to examine. One, how much Bible knowledge do you have, and then your ability to extrapolate what you have into customizable ways to the person who is sitting across from you. And so spend some time examining yourself and even having a conversation with a friend. All right, so there are two kinds of counsel. We've talked about them. We talked about Satan's kind and, and God's kind. And when we think about God's kind, it includes two aspects 
God's kind includes general revelation and special or specific revelation. So I talked about two kinds of counsel, God's and Satan's, but once you peek inside the Lord's counsel, you see these two types, and the first one is general revelation. What is that? General revelation, God reveals himself through the created universe. There are many scriptures that point to this, and I'm sure that you can think of more passages that talk about the Lord's creative work in addition to Psalm 19 and and Romans 1.20. The fundamental idea to remember here is that we cannot know how God wants us to relate to him by looking at the stars, the great green cathedral. This is general, not specific, revelation. The Lord of the universe has, has made a way for us to connect to him, making him different from all the other gods who can only prop themselves up with deities of nature. And so general revelation is a good start, but it doesn't give you the specificity that you need. And again, this is a distinction between our God and all the gods of nature. I recall my mission professor who spent many years in Africa. He told us a story of meeting a tribe, and the natives told him that they knew that God existed. That would be little G-O-D. And the reason they knew was because of the universe. They would describe their journeys in the desert, how they followed the stars like a road map. They could only conclude that there has to be a God because a man, as they said, could not do such a thing. It was at that point that my missions prof, as he was telling us, he began to tell them about the God of the universe, capital G-O-D. Now, that is special revelation, the second way God reveals himself to us. Special revelation, God reveals himself through his word. Now, we've gone from the macro of general revelation to the micro, specific revelation, The Bible tells us about a Redeemer who transforms our lives. We want to ensure that we are learning about Him, theologically speaking, and we mature in teaching others how to apply His life to their life. Of course, our practical example of what this looks like will be our most powerful message. As we grow in Christ's likeness by applying God's special revelation to our lives, then we have a twofold way of presenting God to others. The very life, the practical life that we are living, and then, of course, we can counsel or disciple them through God's truth called the Bible. And so up inside God's counsel, there are two kinds, general revelation and special revelation. Satan's kind, well, it begins with a deceptive presupposition, a cloudy window, a a deceptive window, you might say, and it differs from God. And when folks follow Satan's counsel, only bad results can happen. I need not illustrate that. You know this truly uh, from your own experience. And of course, as you sadly look at others in our culture, many in our family, they follow Satan's advice and Because they have cloudy windows or a poor presupposition, they come to wrong conclusions, and it continues to lead down a a very sad path. One of the key differences is that Satan's counsel always leads to hopelessness, hopelessness and ever-unfolding hopelessness. 
I mean, just think about anyone who rejects God's truth from practically ruling their heart. You will find hopelessness in play, and it will be proportional to their departure from God's Word. One of the first things you'll bring to someone is the hope that they can have in God. Hope is pivotal in soul care, and you want to present it as often as you perceive the weary soul in need of it. And so when a person begins to take an interest in God's counsel as opposed to Satan's counsel, they need hope because they have been walking down a hopeless road. And so you want to present hope, and again, you present hope in two ways. First, you would tell them, God's Word has an answer for whatever you are going through. And then the second prong of hope is, I know this to be true, because this is what God has done for me. Two kinds of counsel, Satan's kind, it begins with a deceptive presupposition. His counsel leads to hopelessness, and then he blinds the mind of his adherents, as Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians keeping them from the hope that they could have in God. Evil counsel, by the way, creates strongholds. It takes thoughts captive. And once Satan's counsel begins to rule, to manage and manipulate the soul, there are really no limits to what a person can do or the depths that they might, not, they might plunge. The only way forward is for them to realize that they're on the wrong path, and there is a better path. And so when you're talking to others, what you want to do is to be an active listener. Based on a lot of the things that I've said thus far, you want to discern them. For example, all of their shaping influences, of course, you want to understand their depth of understanding of, of God's Word. Obviously, you would want to discern their opinion of God, because if they have had adverse shaping influences and you begin to tell them, for example, about God the Father, as I illustrated earlier, that was not that was not a happy a happy thought for me when I first came to God the Father. And so you want to make sure that you are listening well. You need to discern truth from falsehood. You will know if deception is in play by how they talk about their problems. And this is something that you want to key in on. Christians under the power of God's Word will sound hopeful, providing a clue that they are on the right path. Other people will talk about their problems, and it has more of a whine feel to it, a complaining feel to it, meaning that their problems are greater than God's grace. And so you aim to discern where they are. You're not fussing at them, and you're not judging them in an unrighteous way, but you do want to discern them. By the way, many parents need to hear these things because sometimes their impatience can interfere with their sound counsel. That They're not listening, paying attention to what the child is saying, and rather thinking through as to how the child got to this point, the parent becomes impatient, and they start fussing, and of course they will disqualify themselves from being a, a restorative agent in that child's life. And so we want to rise above whatever that person is bringing to us, and we want to listen to them, to discern truth from falsehood. We want to ask questions like, what are they saying? 
We want to know where they're coming from and how their influences have shaped them to where they are more willing to follow lies than truth. And so what are they saying? How has their truth shaped them? Where do they receive their truth? Where did it come from, by the way? And it will be uh, multiple places that, that you will see it came from. And, of course, you want to think through how you can refute any of their lies. You counteract their lies with compassion, always, competence. Of course, you want to grow in your understanding of God's Word. And then courage. Now, with some folks, you'll have to move slower than with others. It'll depend on the nature of your relationship with them and the relational bridge that you have established. One of the liabilities of biblical counseling is that Many times the counselor doesn't have the time to build a sufficient relational bridge with the person that they're trying to have. Of course, many times it's not a person that they're even doing life with, and so the counselee is unsure of your affection for them. But working within a discipleship construct is much better because you can have multiple touch points with that individual. You can see them at the corporate meeting on Sunday morning. You can meet in small group. You can cook out on Saturday evening. You can go to a movie together. You can talk on the phone. You can text with each other. And there are so many ways that you can create these touch points in their lives, not just the counseling office. Why is this important? Because you're not only trying to listen to them, but you are going to eventually refute their lies. And the better your relationship is with someone, the more effective you can be with them and the more willing they will be to listen to what you have to say. And so keys to listening well, let me share a few of them with you. Actually, there are, there are two primary uh, keys for you to distinguish between truth and error, and the degree to which you can apply these things to your life, it will determine your effectiveness with those that you want to see change. The first is keep in step with the Spirit. What I mean is you must be walking in the Spirit. It is a pneumatic approach to your soul care. Perhaps you've heard of a pneumatic drill, an air ranch, Pneumatology is the doctrine of the Spirit. He is an active part of the Godhead, and you want Him working in and for you. The Spirit of God can illuminate your mind while empowering you to work within His strengths, not yours. Now, typically when meeting with someone, this is what I do. I'm praying. I'm asking the Spirit of God to help me by illuminating my mind and highlighting the appropriate scriptures that will assist me as I give this person soul care. I need insight so that he will be able to practicalize what I'm sharing with him. As, as Herman Bovink said, that we should do, not only give them scripture, but they should be sound exegesis and applications that flow out of our source of theology. Of course, the presumption is that you have something inside your brain worth the Spirit's illumination. If you have not been hiding God's Word in your heart, the only thing the Spirit will light up is empty space. Of course, as you believe the Spirit of God is leading you, then you must speak forth those things that you believe He wants you to say. The implication here is a warning. If we have ongoing sin patterns in our lives, 
and are not regularly repenting of our episodic sin patterns, we will quench the Spirit. We will grieve the Spirit. We will also dull our consciences, which will restrict the Spirit's activity in our minds, which will hinder what God could do in our lives and in the person that we are discipling. So there are two warnings that we want to take heed Fill our minds with God's Word so it's not empty space when the Spirit turns the light on through illumination, and keep our minds clean by ongoing repentance. And as you do these things, the Spirit of God will be your most fabulous ally as you care for others. So listening well, key, keep in, keep in step with the Spirit. Key number two, obviously become a master of the Word. Become a master of God's Word. Now, I've already spoken to this point. The Spirit of God will work with you proportionally to your engagement with His Word. The Bible is the source of our theology, as Bavink said, and all of its applications. The natural person does not discern the Bible because it is the Spirit that helps us to see the spiritual book, the Bible. Now, I want to take a reflection point here. And so again, pause as you need to. If someone is not good at discipling, then what you would need to do is to consider their relationship with the Spirit. Is there a pattern of repentance in their lives? Are they regularly cleaning out their minds, cleaning out their hearts, so the Spirit of God is not grieved or quenched and they're not dulling their conscience? I mean, it is something that you want to think about. I mean, maybe they have a capacity issue, and they can only disciple up to a certain level. Or they have a higher capacity to do the work of discipleship, but they're not meeting that capacity because there's ongoing sin in their life where the spirit is grieved, quenched, the conscience is dull. And so when you're in our training program, in our mastermind program, this is one of the things that we want to consider their relationship with the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is the Counselor, capital C. And so how are they cooperating? How is the Counselor cooperating with the Counselor, the Spirit of God? And then the second thing you want to look for is their maturity in God's Word. And so my question to you is, what is your maturity in God's Word, and what is your relationship like with the Spirit of God? How can you cooperate more effectively with the Spirit, and how can you grow in understanding and practicing God's Word more effectively? That is your reflection. All right, let's talk about understanding psychology, because when talking about sanctification, what we're saying is psychology, a Bible word that most folks would connect to the culture more than they would connect to the Bible. But truthfully, you could say that psychology and sanctification are somewhat synonyms within a Christian framework. Thus, knowing what the word psychology means from a biblical worldview is vital. Psychology is the combination of two words. The first word is psyche, which means soul. As you see in Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The word soul is another way of stating creature. And so God breathed into Adam, and Adam became a living soul, a living, living 
psyche. And so psychology is the combination of two words. The first word is psyche, as we see in Genesis 2-7. The second part of the word psychology is logos, which means the study of the soul, or the word concerning the soul when you connect logos to psyche. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all Scripture is breathed. There's God breathing again. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. This is what Paul was saying in Galatians, in Colossians 1.28, that we may be complete in Christ. The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In Genesis, God breathed and created the soul. In 2 Timothy, God breathed again and gave us the word concerning the soul. God is the architect of the soul and the soul book, or the word psychology. The purest form of psychology is when a spirit-illuminated and empowered Christian skillfully brings God's word to bear on a soul, on a psyche. All right, a reflection point. Throughout this lesson, I trust you have stopped and reflected on the content. I want you to continue to do this, and so let's pause for a little more reflection and application. Here's the question. Do you believe there is something about God's Word that makes it untrustworthy in any personal or relational complexity? Now, if your answer is yes or if you're uncertain, you really need to do the work so that you can fully trust in the psychology book, the Bible. We have a sufficiency of Scripture worldview here. It is a prerequisite to competent soul care. But due to some people's former associations, they struggle at this juncture. They do not have a sufficiency of Scripture worldview. And so how do you answer the question? Do you believe there is something about God's Word that makes it untrustworthy in any personal or relational complexity? And I, if there is, I trust as you go through this 10-part series that God will begin to change your mind. And so how would you answer that question? And possibly, what do you need to do if you don't have a sufficiency of Scripture worldview? Reflection point number two, do you believe God's Word is sufficient for your life, providing you a pathway to live godly? Why or why not? Now, this question is similar because I really want to highlight the significance of the point. Where you land on this matter about sufficiency of Scripture, it will determine your competency in handling God's Word. Of course, these questions do beg the question, why do people look elsewhere? And there are several reasons that people do not have a sufficiency of Scripture worldview. I want to highlight just a couple of them, and I would encourage you to think through and maybe add a few more to my list and maybe these are reasons that you have or most definitely reasons that you have experienced from other people who do do not have a sufficiency of Scripture worldview. One, the demand for answers always outpaces the supply of competent disciple-makers. There will always be more folks hurting than those who can help those folks who are hurting. Now, part of the solution is not to create a worldview where counseling is the only answer. That is not the best solution. Developing a discipleship worldview 
within the context of a local church would be much wiser and more comprehensive. I talked about touch points earlier where you're meeting someone at the corporate meeting, in small groups, at the cookout, at the family event of the church, through emailing and phone calls and going out to dinner and hospitality, etc. There are many ways to care for people in a local church, including biblical counseling. However, if we over-exalt the biblical counseling movement or the biblical counseling process, folks will begin to believe that the best help comes through biblical counselors. That is a perspective that the Bible does not teach. And so when we think about why people look elsewhere, we want to make sure that we exalt a discipleship worldview and all of its applications rather than the narrow sub-discipline of biblical counseling to help solve this problem. Of course, the church has not done well in equipping the saints with proper soul care called discipleship. And, of course, the call on the church is to teach all Christians to disciple others, recognizing that only a few will have the capacity and the competency to do formalized biblical counseling. The warning here is straightforward. We must not complain about the church's inefficiencies in equipping the saints— We must do our part to bring solutions, and so we want to exalt a discipleship worldview where everybody gets to play, because the truth is, within the biblical counseling world, it is only the rare people that God has called specifically who have the the measurable objective capacity to counsel in a formalized way, and there's very few of them, and if that's the only model that we have, well, then the demand will always outpace the supply. Here's a reflection point for you. What personal changes do you need to make for your local church to function more effectively as a caring community of Christ-like disciple-makers? Here's another question for you to think about. Would you go to your pastor? Letting him know what you've been learning here in this introduction to biblical counseling, lesson number one, and will you ask him how you can come alongside him to be part of the solution? That may It will encourage him. It may floor him to know that you're willing to come alongside him and be part of the solution because he is under a lot of weight as he carries the burdens of the church. Reflection point number two, what one thing will you do this week? to make a difference among your friends and your local church. Take as much time as you need. The big idea in this particular lesson is, though human beings are the highest order among all creation, we are still dependent. We looked at three points. Humanity was dependent before the fall, dependent at the fall, and we're always dependent on counsel. Just one more thing. As you think about Life Over Coffee, will you pray for our ministry? Will you follow us on any social media platform where you find us? Will you share our resources? Most of our resources are free, and so I want you to please let other people know. And then there are a few who can support us or make a one-time donation. If you can do that, that information is on our website, and it helps to underwrite this ministry. And so just pick one of these five things, and I would greatly appreciate it. And then if you're not a mastermind student and you are considering it, 
You can become one today. That information is on our website as well. And so if that is something that you're open to, uh, please check out our free information and get all your questions answered. And if, if, if there's any more questions after that, please let us know. My name is Rick Thomas. This is Introduction to Biblical Counseling, lesson number one. I appreciate you joining me. And please take time to pause and reflect at all the appropriate stops along the way and the questions that you have written down, and also please go and share what you are learning here. One of the ways that you will memorize and remember what you have learned here is by talking it up among your friends. Sanctification happens in community. It also happens through repetition, and so the more that you share with others, uh, the more these truths will begin to affect your life. Please check out lifeovercoffee.com conversations for transformation. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.